you to turn in the back of your hymnals to Lord's Day 6 of the Heidelberg Catechism, which we'll be considering tonight, page 874 in the back of the hymnal. As we are in this section on grace, salvation, we've considered our guilt, our misery, and our need for a Savior, and tonight we look at the perfect Savior, Jesus Christ. We look in God's Word to Hebrews chapter 7. We're looking at quite a few passages tonight. We're not not preaching the catechism. We're using the catechism to summarize and to organize what the Scriptures teach concerning Jesus Christ. And so we look at Hebrews 7 uh, as we begin tonight. The book of Hebrews is a sermon about the supremacy of Christ over the old covenant system that The speaker is telling his hearers not to go back to that old covenant system of sacrifices, but to look to Christ, the one who is the fulfillment of that sacrificial system, the one who is our true high priest. And so I direct your attention, reading of God's Word, to Hebrews chapter 7. We'll be starting at verse 23 and going through chapter 8, verse 2. This is the Word of God. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. He's talking about the Levitical priesthood. But he, that is Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost or completely those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the oath, which we see earlier in this chapter, which says back in verse 21, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. We just sang that from Psalm 110. That oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up. And not man. So far, the reading of God's own holy word may add his blessing to the reading and proclamation of it this evening. Please keep your Bibles out as we'll be looking at other passages too. But as we come to the Bible's teaching on the dual nature of Christ, his divine nature, his human nature, I want to take a few minutes to to defend the need for doctrinal preaching. I want us to think about that. I was thinking about that just yesterday and and. um, uh, again, uh, wanting to spend some time uh, on that before we get into the, the content of Lord's Day 6. Church in North America has gone through radical changes in recent decades. One of the biggest uh, changes is the call to deeds and not creeds. And there are church leaders who push away from the creeds, preachers who tell their people the gospel is the good news of our transformation. The good news of our new outlook on life. And certainly when the Holy Spirit 
works faith in our hearts and unites us to Christ, we are going to look differently at the world. We're going to look differently uh, and understand the need of the world. We're going to see for the first time, uh, as we're dead in sin before that, and and as we come to, to newness of life through the Spirit, we're going to see for the first time our real need, which is for a Savior who will deliver us from ourselves, not for a salvation that comes through our doing. And so we keep before us then just who is this Savior? Who is this one that God has provided so that we might not uh, uh, fail to recognize how needful it is that we have this one and none other? Just this week I was reminded of that again when I was uh, uh, confronted with a uh, uh, just a, a, I'm not going to get into the details, but with a, a, a very clear uh, confusion uh, between what it is we believe and what it is that other churches believe on a Reformed campus. And it's uh, very troubling and it's very, it reminds us again of how needful uh, to proclaim the truth and uh, to keep it before us. Christ is the way to salvation, the only way. And we want to Remember why that is. Jesus went to the cross to bear punishment. He went there to bear punishment that all people deserve. That's offensive to the world. That's some, not something they want to hear. They want to hear, well, what can I do uh, to, to get God to accept me? And there is something, and that is to repent and believe. <laughs> and, and that's a work of God's grace, as we see through Scripture John Piper uh, wrote a book, 50 Reasons Why Jesus Had to Die. And his first reason, there's many reasons why Jesus had to die, but his first reason is this, to absorb the wrath of God against our sin. That's very, very much right up front, to be very honest. Why, why did he have to come? To absorb the wrath that we deserve for our sin. Not, not a big seller on New York Times, bestseller, as, as you can well imagine. But what is the church to be teaching? What are Christians to be holding on to and teaching to their children and, and telling people about? That God is going to judge sin, but that he has provided a way to be delivered from judgment. But where is that? Where is that deliverance? It's, again, not in our deeds, but in the Lord Jesus Christ. The world will tolerate a church that adopts the ruling agenda of earthly groups, earthly rulers that recognize or, or, or give some, some notion that man is basically good and just needs to be pointed in the right direction. Many churches today preach a, a message that is what they call the most practical, messages on racial reconciliation, social justice, compassion to all, ecological uh, protection, not saying that these things aren't before us, that, 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 that the gospel doesn't call us to, to certain ethical behavior and how we, we live, but, but that the world would love to see the church just focus on those, those, those activities and take our eyes off of the Lord Jesus Christ, who when he came, his first thing was not uh, uh, ecological preservation, but it was repent and believe for, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the way you enter the kingdom is not through what you're doing or how much you're doing, but rather the one in whom you are found. And there are those in in the evangelical church today that are saying that uh, the church's mission is to um, 
to push for these things, to spend all of their time talking about how to break down the walls of racism and nationalism and ecological harm. And again, these, that's not to say we can't have those discussions and have those, those uh, as we study God's Word, what does it look like? How, how, can we, how can we speak of love and compassion and kindness and, and creation care and all of the rest? But, but when it sets aside the church's call to be preaching Christ and Him crucified, which Paul says is my message, then, then we've got we've to part ways with that, with, with that pressure. The kingdom of God is not entered through love and good deeds, but through repentance and faith. Love and good deeds flow out of faith, and we, uh, we want to have a faith that's not alone. We want to have a faith that is active, that is pressing forward with the compassion of God, but with the truth of God. Christ appears, and what does it say? He came in grace and truth. It, it's just, it's just obvious to us when we look at the Gospels. The Gospels, the majority of each of the Gospels is, is what? If you, if you think about the Gospels, what is the majority of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? It's the last days of Jesus, right? It's what he did, <clears throat> what he came to do, to die, to rise again, to, to ascend. And he sets that out. Now the Gospel, again, has ethical implications to be sure. But the call is to bow one's knee. To bow one's knee before Jesus Christ to be delivered from sin's punishment by what he has done and because of who he is. Uh, Piper, again, uh, says something along these lines. I don't have the exact quote in my mind, but uh, uh, something of reading the Gospels in reverse. Matthew one twenty one says, uh, uh, "You have uh, you shall name his name, you shall call him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." And then we look at the back of the gospel. We see how he's going to do that, and then we we see why we ought to worship him, why he is worthy of all our worship, because he is unlike any other. What he's done is what is needful for us, and he has every right then to have claim upon our lives to say, "I am your Lord and Savior." Listen and live. It matters that we remember who he was and what he did, or we, we, get, we, get, the, we get our definitions all mixed up. We, we don't have a right understanding of what it is when we say the gospel. It's the foundation of our salvation, who Jesus is and what he's done. Book title came to my mind this week as I was thinking about this. I, I, again, I... I work through different titles for my sermons throughout the week. I don't have them nailed down on, on, on Monday. But uh, the one book is, What He Must Be If, if He's Going to, to Marry My Daughter. Now, that's a book on biblical manhood. It's not a, it's not a book on, on the dual nature of Christ. But the, the, the title made me think of this with a, with, subtle, with, a, with a subtle change. What He Must Be to Be My Savior. What He Must Be in Order to Be a Perfect Mediator. That matters. Now, we should be concerned. We should care about who our daughter is going to marry, who our son is going to marry. But, but we ought to also be uh, uh, etern- concerned because of eternity of who our, the Savior is. Who is he? And can he help us in our need? Well, 
The question last week was, what kind of mediator should we look for? Excuse me, a few weeks ago when we were together. What kind of mediator should we look for? That was last Lord's Day. One one who is true and righteous man and also true God, uh, answer 15 said. That immediately narrows the search. (laughs) In fact, down to one, the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen now to question and answer 18 from the Lord's Day that we consider tonight as we turn our attention to Lord's Day 6. Who is this mediator, true God, and at the same time, a true and righteous man? Our Lord Jesus Christ, who was given to us for our complete deliverance and righteousness. I'm taking it out of order. Now go back to 16. Why must the mediator be a true and righteous man? Because God's justice requires that human nature, which has sinned, must pay for its sin. But a sinner could never pay for others. And then question 17, why must he also be true God? So that by the power of his divinity, he might bear in his humanity the weight of God's wrath and earn for us and restore to us righteousness and life. Heidelberg Catechism summarizes the Bible's clear and consistent message as it's found in the Old and New Testaments. Now I want to make a connection within the Catechism by looking at question and answer 19 and question and answer 3. Look at that question, question 19. How do you come to know this? Where have we heard that question? How do we, how do we come to know already in the catechism? Back at question answer three, right? How do you come to know? We confess that Jesus is true God and at the same time true and righteous man. How do you come to know that Jesus is the perfect mediator provided by God for our salvation? Listen to what it says. The Holy Gospel tells me. God himself began to reveal the gospel already in paradise. Later, he proclaimed it by the holy patriarchs and prophets and foreshadowed it by the sacrifices and other ceremonies of the law. And finally, he fulfilled it through his own beloved son. Well, what did question and answer three ask us? How do you come to know your misery? How do you come to know your need? There's a difference in law and gospel, isn't there? There's a difference. The law of God tells me is the answer to that. How do you come to know your misery? The law of God tells me. The matter of authority is central to all right understanding, to how we can see our, so that we can see our need clearly and see where our hope is to be found. We don't decide the answer to these questions. It is Scripture that guides us and tells us. The Bible tells us that God came to man in the garden with a clear command. What was that command? Obey and live. There was a probation. If you obey, you will live. And the opposite? If you disobey, you shall surely die. And when man disobeyed, we see what happened. Came under the curse of death. Now, God was not unjust to ground relationship with himself on obedience and to require it. He created us with the ability to keep the law. We've already seen that. We won't go over that again. But upon the disobedience of Adam and Eve, the law became deadly to us. Now we're condemned by it. The law said, do this and you shall live. The opposite, if you do not do this, you shall die. The law condemns. The law speaks condemnation as a means for salvation. So the standard hasn't changed. We've changed. That's what's changed. 
This has to be remembered. Christ did not come uh, as, as, as only an example. He didn't come to, he came rather to fulfill all righteousness. Without his work, there could be no salvation. But, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. It, it, what we need to see first off is it wasn't clear at the beginning how this was going to happen. When Adam and Eve sinned, they didn't die physically, so they were wondering what's, what's going on. What does he mean? Well, they died spiritually. They came under the curse of the law, under the curse of death. And then we read later that the law... As we know it, the Ten Commandments came to reveal transgressions, to show us our sins. We have that use of the law. We talk about the first use of the law. Reveals to us our our sin and need of a Savior. We know of other uses of the law, but tonight we focus on that one. The gospel is a different answer. It's not a condemning answer. It's a hope-giving answer. Gospel answers the law's condemnation when it asks this question, how do you know? How do you know the way of salvation? The gospel tells me. The gospel tells me. What is the gospel? That's why it's so important for us to review that, to remember that, because we have so many that confuse the gospel. So, how do you know? Well, we see it in the Scriptures Look to the Bible. Can you see, then, is the second point. Can you see the gospel as it weaves its way through the Scriptures? The gospel tells us that we have a mediator who will earn for us and restore to us righteousness and life. The truth has been unfolding since the fall. It's the theme of the good news that goes, it's the good news that goes throughout the entire Bible. Writer of Hebrews says in chapter 4, for good news has come to us, that is New Testament believers, just as it came to them, to Old Testament believers, Hebrews 4 verse 2. So it hasn't changed. God hasn't changed. It's the same gospel message, but it's it's unfolding. Already in Genesis 3.15, what does God say? He says to Satan that there's going to be enmity between you and the woman, between her seed and yours. God is gracious to create that enmity so that we don't uh, go along with the devil, that we see that enmity as God graciously delivers us. But Adam and Eve still don't understand how this is going to occur. So then we read, the gospel was proclaimed uh, by the holy patriarchs as well. I'm, I'm referring to answer 19 of the catechism. Think of Genesis 22. What happens there when Abraham, the, one of the patriarchs, does, uh, brings his son to Mount Moriah? What does he do? He, he, he's preparing to offer his son as a sacrifice. And the Lord says, don't, and provides a substitute. And there we see that ram on behalf of the son, which points forward to the son on behalf of the sheep. The Lord Jesus Christ, the one who would be substituted for us, taking that blow. Abraham then is preaching the gospel of substitution. On the mount of the Lord it will be provided, Mount Moriah. Prophets proclaim the gospel as well. They, they didn't just condemn. They didn't just come as, as uh, lawyers of the covenant lawsuit. They also proclaimed the gospel What does Isaiah do? He says that this one to come is going to bear our iniquity. And Jesus did that. He bore the wrath of God's anger against our sin. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, is how Isaiah says it in Isaiah 53. 
And verse 5, why is Jesus coming? Is he just coming to set an example and to say, we just, I just want you to know that, that being out of step with God is, it leads to bad things, as, as some would like to teach it? No, he's come and, and he dies to bear the judgment so that we might be delivered from it. He's the one pierced, hands and feet. The people here, here they see what's happening as Jesus is on the cross and they hear Isaiah 53 in their, in their heads, right? Peter says, yes, his cross is in one sense an example. Let me, let me turn to 1 Peter as, so that you can hear that. Peter says, to this you've been called, Christ, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you at examples that you might follow in his steps. To, to suffer for the faith, yes. But then he, he doesn't just stop there. He says, it's also the means of our salvation. Verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Alluding back to Isaiah 53. Peter says in Acts 10, 43, to him all the prophets bear witness. Prophets were gospel preachers. Well, if there's any number of false teachings as to what Jesus is doing, just refer to some of this in a book by Kevin DeYoung as he's looking back at some of the, uh, the issues in the church today. He says, the good news is not that we're a world that needs refurbished morals, that, that we just need to, to, to correct our way of thinking. The, the good news is that, there, that there's a Savior provided for our curse, for our judgment. And he says we, we need to call people we need to call people. He says this, there are some who ask, uh, who, who say to their people, uh, not, are you ready to meet God, but instead ask, what do you want to become in the next 50 years? What kind of world do you want to create? And, and they say, it's on you. It, it's up to you. What, what sort of world you're going to, to live in? What sort of, what of way you're going to choose? How, how you're going to be, if you're going to be walking faithfully, then you'll know happiness. If you're not, then you won't. And, and, and people walk out and they say, well, I, I guess I... I I just got to figure this out. Get closer to God by, by my, my actions. Again, don't, don't, miss, don't, don't hear me in an improper way. Faith is never alone. We demonstrate our faith by our fruit, right? But, but we're not saying, well, I'm, 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 I'm climbing Jacob's ladder, as it were, to get to heaven through my, through my doing. That's to confuse things. Why did Jesus die? He died to absorb the wrath of God. One of many reasons, but a primary one. Galatians 3 tells us that. He bore the curse. became a curse for us. There are those who, who say that the call to faith is, is more a footnote 
to the gospel than actually the gospel. I'm looking for the quote here in this book. I was working on this this afternoon because this came to me late yesterday and I was trying to think through this, but um, I guess it's not, it's not in front of me at the moment. But, but the, the comment is, I came to a place of amazement when I realized that, that the, the, the call to faith is, is the footnote, the, the real the real transformational message is who you are in Christ and, and what you can do, and, and God wants you to usher in the kingdom through your doing. That's a, that's a, that's a strange message and a confusing message and, and leaves people wondering, well, wait a minute, how does Jesus fit into this? And the answer then is, well, he's your example. He, they say, watch what he does. That's what it looks like. And the scriptures say, no, the, the gospels are all about what, what he's accomplished on our behalf to deliver us from the judgment against our sins. Well, we could uh, spend a lot of time looking at the ways that that's illustrated, but let's continue through what the catechism has to say. Is it, it says that the Old Testament sacrifices and ceremonies of the law showed the uh, foreshadowed the, the coming of, of a Savior as well. Right? Answer 19 says, this was the Holy Gospel is foreshadowed in the sacrifices and other ceremonies of the law. Leviticus 1 through 7 talks about all the blood that shed for atonement, pointing forward to, looking forward to, one who would come to shed his blood for the complete forgiveness of our sins. The law pointed forward to the need of a greater sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice of Christ. If we're back in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10, it says that there, Hebrews chapter 10, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. But in Christ's coming, the offering of his body once for all, it is through this that we are sanctified, Hebrews 10.10. You see, by nature, our, we imagine ourselves to be self-saviors if, we just, if we're just given the right instructions or if we just are faithful enough or zealous enough. The Bible tells us that God is the one who must bring us to himself through repentance and faith. Jesus says that in his day, there were those who were searching the scriptures for a formula to to see how they could draw near to God. Remember his conversation there in John chapter 5? He says, you search the scriptures, for by them you think there's a way of life. But he says, they are the scriptures that testify about me. They're all pointing to me, he says. God's answer for sin. And then we see that at the end of answer 19 as it picks up that theme or it picks up those verses when it says that all of these things point forward to the beloved son in whom these things are fulfilled. It's amazing to see how Jesus fulfills all prophecy. Think about that. Or does it say he's going to come from the tribe of Judah unexpected? We read that in Genesis 49. We saw that just recently in our series through Genesis. What about where he's going to be born? Bethlehem, right? Micah chapter 5, verse 2. And indeed, Joseph, who is of the house and line of David, is there in Bethlehem in the day uh, upon the time of Jesus' birth. 
He's born of a virgin. That too is confusing, those, those that words in the Old Testament from Isaiah chapter 7. Uh, and then fulfilled, even Mary not understanding it all in Luke chapter 1, verse 34. He's the one who's going to be oppressed and Though oppressed, he would not open his mouth. Isaiah 53, verse 7. There is Jesus before Pilate, not speaking. He's acting, he's fulfilling rather, the prophecy before him. They would make his, Isaiah says that his grave would be with the wicked, provided by a rich man. Joseph of Arimathea places the body of Jesus in the tomb and all his Fulfilled in Jesus. He dies, but he's not abandoned to the place of the dead. The psalmist says, Psalm 16, verse 10. He is one who is not abandoned to Sheol. He rose to scatter his enemies, Psalm 68, verse 1. Jesus says, and as the gospel goes forth in, uh, in Luke, he says, I saw Satan falling like lightning from the sky as the gospel goes forth, and he delivers the oppre- uh, uh, his people from the oppressed such that they would rejoice, Isaiah 9 and verse 4. It's just amazing when you start thinking about how all these, all these passages are, are fulfilled in this, in this one to come. How do you know Jesus is your mediator? Because the Bible tells me so. The gospel reveals it. The Bible teaches us that Jesus' death on the cross was payment for sin. Not as some teach uh, evidence of how valuable we are to God. We are valuable to God. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He has uh, shown that he has a great love for the world. But the emphasis can quickly lead us to ignore the reality of the work of Christ and our need to Believe in what he has accomplished on our behalf by his death. Some argue that what Jesus was doing in his teaching and preaching was calling people to live to their true potential, the kingdom life, as it were, and to give their lives unto death. We certainly are called to take up our cross and follow after Christ, but that cross is not redemptive It's rather our response. We're willing to suffer for the gospel. We're willing to put to death sins of the flesh in the power of the Holy Spirit, Romans 8, 13. And Christ's first word in his ministry is of repentance and to believe in the gospel for the forgiveness of sins and the assurance of life in him. So we must turn to him and tell others their need for him. Satan doesn't want that message to be heard. So the question then is, do you trust him? Do you trust him? Can you trust him as a savior? Can can you trust him as one who fulfills all righteousness? And the catechism says yes. Why? Because he's true and righteous man. Because he's true God. He's true God and true and righteous man. The scriptures emphasize this again and again. Our creeds highlight this biblical teaching. Nicene Creed, he was God of God and was made man. Chalcedonian Creed, we confess our Lord Jesus Christ, perfect in divinity and perfect in humanity, truly God and truly man, of a rational soul and body that is like unto us, of the same substance with the Father as, he, as regards his divinity and of the same substance with us as regards his humanity. And in all things like unto us without sin. The emphasis, uh, the highlighting of biblical teaching. 
And as we saw in Hebrews 7, it's fitting that he would be like us and without sin. Chapter 7 again, back there in verse 26 and 27, it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, one who is holy and innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. Since he did this once for all when he was offered, or when he offered up himself. Christ suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, Paul or Peter writes, to bring us to God. We can trust Christ as perfect man. We can trust him as true God. John 7 says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It was with God in the beginning. Then in verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 says, God has spoken in various ways in the past. In the last days, He speaks of in it through His Son. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. And after he has made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. 1 John 1 says, what do we testify of? The one that we have seen, the one who is from heaven, made manifest. By the power of his divinity, he bore the weight of God's wrath against our sin and his humanity. We can trust him because as the catechism summarizes scriptural teaching, he earned for us and restores to us righteousness and life. He gives complete deliverance and righteousness. We can trust him because he's a complete savior. You see, brothers and sisters, the gospel isn't just news that encourages us to try and try again to be good. It's the record of God's total rescue of his people. Gospel isn't something that we do. It's something we live something that we receive by faith, finished by God, that Christ is the one who earns for us and restores to us righteousness in life. It's that message, the only message which can lead us to fall before the face of our holy and majestic God and want to offer our bodies holy, to be wholeheartedly ready from now on to live for Him. Gospel, the law says you're doomed, you're dead. You're under the wrath of God. The gospel says in Christ you are dead to sin and alive in him forevermore. That's the word that we receive by faith, which we'll look at next time, Lord willing. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, as we think upon all of these scriptures and of this truth, we know that there are so many messages and signals interfering with it, confusing us and Perhaps we don't find it all that interesting. We think it's not exciting. Yet it is concerning matters of eternity that, we set, that are set before us tonight. Oh Lord, stir our hearts to want to live for you because of this glorious gospel. To hear that word and to say, Lord, we will do all that you call us to do to show our gratitude. Lord, may our faith be bearing much fruit, that you would be glorified in and through us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.